Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 354 of Forgotten Classics, more of the Green Jacket. First, though, let's talk about a podcast highlight that I discovered, which is really great. It's called LeVar Burton Reads. And this one is for anybody who likes stories read to them out loud. Oh, that's me. Anybody who likes LeVar Burton, both hands in the air right here. And if you're my kid's age, (laughs) anybody who's always wished there was a reading rainbow for adults. For one thing, who can resist LeVar Burton's glorious tones as he reads these stories? They're all pieces of short fiction He's chosen them himself, and there are only three episodes, so it won't take you too long to catch up. So far, there's been a science fiction piece, which he says is his true love, so again, I'm on board for that. A fantasy piece, which is in two parts. The second part hasn't come out yet. And I don't know, this other piece might have been, I don't know what it was, just plain fiction maybe? didn't seem like magic realism, but it almost could have been. So he's picking some interesting things that are just his personal favorites. Anyway, I highly recommend you give it a try. You may or may not like the stories, but I always like to hear something where somebody's picking stories by authors I haven't tried yet. And so far he's three for three. And as I said, lovely reading style. So you can find it at iTunes. I have the link at the blog. So give it a try. LeVar Burton reads. Now, let's talk about the green jacket. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I think my description last time was a bit misleading. I had not listened ahead and I remembered the story mostly, but not specifically. And I thought we got to talk to Stephen. That's actually going to happen today. Today we are getting Stephen's view of the whole story. I was surprised. I think you will be too. Last time we did meet Stephen briefly because he came home. His mother talks about him. Now, I'm going to say when his mother says he was $3,000 in debt and, oh, he borrowed it from the bank. Oh, wait, without benefit of a loan. So he essentially took it. Today, that would have been $10,000. So we're not just talking about a more minor theft. And even today, stealing $3,000, I would think of as a bad deal. But $10,000 back then, how do you get into that much freaking debt? How do you not feel terrible about it? How do you steal it and call it borrowing? I have a lot of questions for Stephen. I also thought it was interesting that you know, Stephen's mother is talking about, oh, there's a lease. I really hoped she'd be my daughter-in-law. And somehow that for me was the tipping point of, I've always felt sorry for this lady. But then I was going, oh, wait, she's making a thousand excuses for Stephen. She's pushing him at this girl who he may or may not like. And we get the feeling he doesn't necessarily like her because she's like, oh, we're all going to go over for tea. And he's like, no, I don't want to. She understands. So suddenly the mother is a bit more complex. She's not just somebody to pity. 
she's someone to kind of look at and go, oh, wait, what have you contributed to this whole situation in whatever way? So I'm finding that interesting. We're getting down toward the end. We'll have two more episodes after this, and then we'll start the story I've been trying to get ready in my extra time. So have you got it figured out? No, me either, because, you know, we haven't really heard from everyone, have we? As I said, we'll hear from Stephen today. Get your knitting, and let's dive into the green necklace. Chapter 19 Stephen Mason finished his cigar and tossed away the end and entered the house. A little later, Millie heard him talking with his father. The voices were relaxed and easy. The little note of constraint seemed to have vanished. Then the car appeared, and they went toward the steps. The son looked back and saw the mother in the doorway, and sprang to escort her to the car. There was something very winning in the air of devotion with which he led her across the terrace. Her hand on his arm seemed to rest with a little weight, and the figure bending to her was full of affectionate care. He placed her in the car and stood waiting for his father, one hand on the door of the car, the other thrust carelessly into his pocket, laughing and talking with her. Mr. Mason, who had turned back to the house for a minute, came quickly down the steps and got in. The son closed the door upon them and stood back, watching them drive away. He waved his hand to them and returned it to his pocket, and watched the car out of sight. Then he turned and came slowly up the steps. On the terrace near the French windows, at the side of the house, a grey figure was seated in a wicker chair, knitting busily. He scanned it with a little start of surprise. Then he crossed the terrace and stood looking off. Presently he turned and strolled toward the front of the house. The woman who was knitting looked up from her work and bowed slightly, and beckoned him with a little motion of her hand. He returned the bow formally, and came forward with a puzzled look, smiling a little. "'I am wondering who you are,' he said courteously. "'You look so at home sitting there with your knitting. I could almost fancy you had always been there, and I had never seen you till now.' "'An invisible lady,' she laughed. "'Oh, no, I weigh a hundred and thirty-two. I wanted to speak to you. Will you sit down, please?' He took the chair she motioned to, and the little look of bewilderment and half-amusement waited on her wishes. "'My mother did not tell me we were to have a guest in the house,' he said courteously. "'I am not a guest. I am the seamstress.' Her eyes were on the needles flying through the green wool. He surveyed her with a look of pleasure. His figure in the chair relaxed. "'I remember now. Mother did say something about a seamstress helping her. But,' he turned a little and let his glance rest on her, "'she did not tell me what you would look like.' She lifted her eyes. "'I look like a seamstress, I hope,' she returned easily. "'Well, perhaps,' he seemed to consider it. "'I've never seen many seamstresses. Perhaps.' There was a silence between them for a minute. The man was wondering about this quiet, self-contained working woman who had summoned him so unconventionally. And the woman was noting that the face opposite to her was lined and sad. The face of the youth in the picture in the library upstairs was carefree. Its openness seemed to have nothing to conceal or regret. But this face opposite her held in its tense lines something a little tragic. It was the face of a man who had suffered deeply, who perhaps was suffering now under the quiet look of reserve. She turned with a little gesture of revealment. "'I am not a seamstress,' she said quietly. "'No?' His glance held it. "'I am here to help your mother.' Her eyes were on his face. "'You know she is in trouble?' 
He bent his head without speaking. His face was a little wondering, perhaps a little watchful. "'Will you explain to me how you are helping her?' he asked. The reserve in his voice had deepened, but it was not unfriendly. "'I want to tell you. That is why I spoke to you. I want to talk to you about your mother. She came to me in my office the other day.' "'You are not a doctor,' he broke in. "'Or a nurse?' he added doubtfully. She smiled. "'I might be called a mind-nurse, perhaps.' He stared. "'I help people who are in trouble. They often come to me. I am a detective.' The hand on the arm of his chair gripped it suddenly. He sat looking off across the hills, the little smile on his lips regarding them slowly. Her hurrying needles purled a double stitch, and another, and finished the row before she looked up. "'I am very glad you came just now. I think you can help, more than anyone in the world, perhaps, to solve the trouble.' He turned and looked at her. "'Yes?' he said inquiringly. "'You are very near to your mother in spirit, I think, and you will have seen things that no one else, perhaps, would have noticed or remembered.' He threw out a hand with a quick gesture. "'I know nothing,' he said with emphasis. "'I wish to God I did.' The last words were under his breath. "'You know your mother is not well?' He looked away, as if he would not have her see the pain her words caused him. "'She is well enough to be about,' he said. "'Well enough to go motoring.' He moved restlessly. "'She does not say she is ill?' He broke off. "'What is it you want of me?' he asked in a low voice. He had sat up in his chair and was leaning forward, his arms resting on his knees, looking down at the brick pavement between his feet. She studied the downcast face a minute. "'Will you tell me everything you can remember that happened here, about two years ago? Your mother has told me that the trouble, whatever it is, began at that time. If I can see things as they look to you, it may help me to understand. Everything.' He looked at her queerly for a minute. Then a look of resolution crossed his face. "'All right,' he said it quickly and paused, as if considering where to begin. A thought touched his face and stayed with him. "'Why didn't my mother tell me who you are?' he asked keenly. Milly smiled back to him. "'You may trust me. Your mother did not tell you, because she has given everything into my hands.' "'May I speak to her about it later?' "'If you like. But I advise you not to. If you will all go on living as if I were not here, as if nothing had happened, or were going to happen, I can finish my work sooner and go away." Her fingers adjusted the flying wool and shook it free and the man's eyes followed it thoughtfully. "'It is hard to begin,' he said, "'because nothing happened. We simply became unhappy. Two years ago we were the happiest family in the world—father and mother and Marion,' he turned with a swift look. "'You knew there was an adopted daughter—my sister?' "'Yes, your mother spoke of her. But tell me whatever comes to you. I want to see it all through your eyes. What was she like?' "'Marion?' He seemed to hold the name a moment, as if it echoed a little sadly to him. "'She was beautiful,' he said slowly. "'The most beautiful woman in the world, I think.' The sadness lingered in the words. He turned to her. "'You know she is dead?' "'Yes.' He remained lost in thought, looking down at the brick pavement, and the sadness in his face deepened to sternness. He roused himself and shook his head impatiently. "'The strange thing is I do not know what happened,' he said. We were all happy together, always planning things, never away from each other, never a thought we did not all share, and then something changed. What was it? He hesitated and went on. I think it was my mother's feeling for my adopted sister. She became almost harsh to her. My mother. He seemed to dwell on it wonderingly. My mother would not harm the smallest thing in the world, 
yet she suddenly became harsh with Marian, cruel almost. And there was no reason for it? The question was searching and gentle, and again he hesitated slightly. Yes, there was a reason, but it seemed incredible to me. I have never been able to believe it. I loved Marian, he said slowly, and my mother discovered it. From that moment, it seemed to me, everything changed. But why did she object? The question pressed home again, but he shook his head, and the puzzled look between his eyes deepened. I do not know. I have never been able to solve it. I only know she fought it bitterly. She had thought I would marry someone else, he said half reluctantly. Elise Marshall, where they have gone this afternoon. But I never cared for Elise, except as a jolly good friend. There has been no one but Marion for me, always. He sat looking at something irrevocable, and again the stern lines settled in his face. "'And there was nothing else that happened?' asked Milly gently. He shook his head. "'Nothing,' he said confidently. "'Absolutely nothing.' "'Nothing about you that might have worried her?' A little disconcerted look crossed his face. "'There was something,' he admitted, "'but nothing that worried her. She did not know it, in fact, until it was practically over.' He spoke with an ease that even to Milly's watchful sense had no note of concealment. His mind seemed running back to the events of that time, gathering them up. I'd been in debt, you know. I had to borrow a lot of money from different friends. I finally borrowed from the bank I was in. Three thousand dollars. Borrowed it? Yes. He looked at her. Did you give security? He turned as if startled that she should ask him. He hesitated. Then he laughed a little. Well, the truth is, no one knew that I had borrowed it. It was only a temporary loan. I expected to pay it back in two days. Of course, said Milly. He smiled at the dryness of her tone. You understand, he assented, I was caught. But it would have been all right if things had gone as I expected. You did not make the money, you mean. I made it, but not till long after. I knew the bank examiner was due, and the money must be there. Perhaps that was what troubled your mother, she suggested. He stared at her. Mother? Oh, no. She never had a suspicion. He shook his head. She knew you were in debt? Yes, we talked about it sometimes. It was only half a joke with us. She used to try to make me promise to save and pay up and start straight. And I was always meaning to, after this one more time. He smiled ruefully. Then finally I had the chance. It was a curious thing. He seemed to recall it a little wonderingly. I found one morning, in the pocket of my coat, a roll of bills. Five thousand dollars, enough to repay the bank and put everything straight. You found it? echoed Milly, incredulously. People do not find five thousand dollars in their pockets, do they? I did, he said stoutly. But who put it there? Did you ever know? There was a note with it. A friend wanted me to have the money, but he did not want it to come between us. The money was mine, to pay my debts with. Did you do it? He nodded. Pretty glad to. I went to mother first. I always told her everything pleasant that came to me, and that was pretty pleasant, I thought. But I wasn't quite sure it might not be a trap of some kind, so I talked it over with her. She said to use it, and perhaps some time I would find out who it was and could pay it back. You never have? No. Nor any idea who it was? Well, there is a friend I often think might have done it. Alan Sargent. We were great chums, and he knew I owed a great deal. He had a chance at the coat. It was at his tailor's being cleaned. I know he was in the shop the afternoon before it came home. I've talked with him, but he swore he knew nothing about it. He knew I hadn't the money to pay back, anyway. Perhaps now I have some, he'll own up to it. He's coming out tomorrow, I hope. 
the swift flying needles made a sudden little jump and click and settled again to even rhythm did he know you had borrowed the three thousand from the bank no the tone was sober did anyone know no one in the world but my father i went to him as soon as i found i might need the money you expected he would get it for you he laughed shortly i did not expect i knew there is no one in the world like my father he added his shoulders straightened a little you didn't dread to tell him then he shook his head proudly there is nothing i would mind telling him he is not like other men he added slowly and through milly's mind there flashed another voice my husband is not like other men he is a poet how is he different she asked curiously he paused seeming to try for words and shook his head he looked at her you do not know him he asked i have only seen him at a distance then you cannot know he looks like a business man doesn't he commonplace there is nothing striking about him surely and yet when you know him i cannot put it in words perhaps it will tell you better than anything i can say that when i was in trouble i went to him was he angry i have never known my father to be angry with me he spoke slowly as if he were thinking of it and his voice was full of affection he told me not to worry he could get it for me if worse came to worst he could sell a block of houses i should have the money i felt sure i should make it speculating did you yes but that was later i have more than enough now that i have no use for it he said soberly he seemed lost in thought and the look of sadness returned to his face milly glanced at it and then at the hand that half reached to his breast pocket and drew back you may smoke she said quietly he smiled gratefully and drew the cigar from his pocket he lighted it and sat watching the smoke drift away what happened then after you had the money nothing that i expected he said bitterly i had thought we should all be happy again i had made up my mind to give up my extravagances and cut out speculating i was going to marry marian and settle down i thought we should be happier than we had ever been i seemed to see things in a clear light all life seemed larger and things opened out i began to notice children on the street and to think of them here in the old house scampering through the halls and calling out when i came home i could always see my mother with them she worships children he said wistfully i got to seeing the house like that filled with children and new life and happiness and now he motioned to the empty rooms behind them he sat smoking in silence the landscape stretched away serene in the late sunshine and behind them rose the gracious house with the secret in its empty rooms the man stirred a little and glanced at the gray figure knitting with quiet fingers it's curious i should be telling you all this he said consideringly they are things i have never said even to myself before i shut the door on them and locked it when i went away from home why did you go asked milly she did not tell him that many doors that had been shut and locked on secrets had opened to her touch and that confidences gave themselves almost as freely to her as the wool that was slipping quietly by her needles and weaving its strange little pattern in the stitches of green wool instead she turned as she withdrew the amber needle from a last stitch and glanced at him he was lost in thought why did you go away she repeated gently he roused himself i was restless afraid i would slip back into my old ways the house was too lonely after marian went i got the bank to transfer me to their branch in brockton i told my mother it was a better opportunity it was but i really went because of marian she was never out of my thoughts he looked down at the cigar between his fingers 
and knocked a bit of ash from its tip. I could not understand Mother's feeling about Marion. It was almost as if she were afraid to have me marry her, some taint in the blood. She never spoke openly, only in vague hints. We did not know what kind of people she came from, she said. We did not know what she might do some day. Did she say this to Marion? Not in words, he said quickly. But Marion knew that in some way she was standing between my mother and me. I have tried to think it was only a kind of mother jealousy, he said slowly. He raised his glance to her. Do you think a mother could be like that? Milly shook her head. Not your mother, she replied. No. He seemed to muse on it. How well you understand her. Thank you. He leaned forward. What was it, then? Why should she have been so cruel to her? Milly waited for him to go on. I thought then that I would never forgive her for what she did, he said slowly. But I have forgiven it, long since. I have learned how to forgive, I guess. The lines of suffering in his face deepened a little. She did not oppose your going? No, she did not suspect. The bank offer was a good opportunity, and I think she began to be afraid for me. I was so restless and moody. She even urged my going. And my father wanted it, too. Milly looked up. He knew. Everything, said the young man. It was he who advised me to find Marion and marry her. Your mother was hard on the child, he said to me one night when we had been sitting in his study a long time talking. If you love her, marry her, he said. Make her happy. I shall never forget his words, nor the look in his face as he said them. There is no joy in life like that of a happy marriage, with mutual love and trust, and no hell on earth like a marriage without it. He said it with such intense bitterness that I was startled. I left home a few days later and joined Marion. She was my wife for nearly a year before she died. He glanced about him and off to the distant hills and moved his shoulders a little, as if a burden rested on them. I cannot tell you how strange it seems to be here, just as when I was a boy, alone with my father and mother, and that year of happiness between, it almost seems like a dream to me. It was dreamlike in its perfect happiness and in its awakening, he added under his breath. There was not a shadow on it except Marion's longing to be friends with my mother, and even that came just before she died. He glanced at her. Yes, your mother told me, and how happy it made her. Marion was devoted to her. She would never let me be depressed about the trouble. She said it would all come right some day. She was always saying, You will be with them again, and happier than you have ever been. Even when she was dying, she said it, and she made me promise to come home soon. So I am here. He looked about him a little wearily. But she is not here. She will never be here again. Are you sure? said Milly gently. He tossed away his cigar a little impatiently. Oh, I have thought and wondered till I am not sure of anything, he cried. We burn out and are tossed aside. He motioned to the bit of cigar smouldering at the edge of the bricks. He reached into his pocket for another and cut the end with a grim look on his lips. Yet even I have felt her presence in the house, returned Milly. He looked at her under his lowered brows, and the hand that was lighting the cigar trembled a little. My mother said something like that this morning. He threw away the match. Perhaps it is true. I would give a great deal to believe it. And yet you, who never saw her, are the one. He stared at it, and put his cigar to his lips, and blew away a cloud of smoke. I cannot believe it, he said. There was a faint burring sound in the distance. He bent his head to listen, and looked toward the drive. They are coming. He got up. Milly reached a quick hand to him. I must see you again, she said swiftly. 
what you have told me is very important will you make an excuse to see me again as soon as you can when your father is not here he glanced at her keenly and nodded then he turned and moved toward the steps and stood smoking and looking off at the approaching car as it drew near he ran down the steps and opened the door he came up the steps between the two laughing and talking gaily in the open sunshine the great house before them the car driving rapidly away vines and flowers all about the little group made a pretty picture no one could have fancied that a shadow rested on them or on the house as they passed within the gracious doorway open to receive them after dinner they all sat on the terrace for a while the father and son smoking the mother resting back in her chair and looking at them contentedly presently she left them and went into the house milly saw her enter the doorway and hesitate a moment and then go slowly up the stairs in the half-dusk of the sewing-room she sat listening to the voices of the two men she could not hear the words but the voices had a friendly relaxed sound and there were long spaces of companionable silence she watched the stars come out above the two figures and the ends of the cigars gleam in little points of light through the dusk she did not light the gas in the sewing-room but sat knitting and waiting on the chance that the sun would make an opportunity to come to her upstairs she could hear margaret's footsteps going through the hall and her wheezy voice and then at last mrs mason's voice bidding her good-night and the house settled to silence outside the two cigars still gleamed faintly and the terrace was wrapped in darkness only along the sky to the east an even light spread itself the moon would be rising soon milly rolled up her knitting and put it away she was tired a night's rest was imperative if she was to be ready for her work to-morrow she wanted to take these things that stephen mason had told her and carry them into the world of sleep she would not dream of them but somewhere in the night she knew they would arrange themselves in orderly sequence and when she woke something would lie ready to her hand almost even now she could reach out and touch it but each time something shifted beneath her fingers and escaped her she would go to bed she put her work into its bag and gave another glance at the two figures on the terrace and went upstairs the long hall seemed very light as she came out of the dimness of the sewing-room and at the top of the stairs she saw a bright light in mrs mason's room the door stood open to the hall the next minute as if her step had been hearkened for mrs mason appeared in the doorway she stepped quickly into the hall and milly moved toward her the face questioned her as she came toward it and a gesture of the hands reached out to her did you have your talk with stephen she breathed yes a good talk did he tell you anything a great deal the woman seemed almost to withdraw a step what was it she asked he gave me a clue almost the first thing i have felt sure of milly paused a moment i think we are very close to discovering who took your emeralds oh she seemed to shrink from her her lifted eyes gave a swift questioning look then she passed into her room and closed the door in that moment's look her face had gone white but beneath it was a look of trust a trust that gave itself and everything it held into the unquestioned care of the woman before her chapter twenty milly slept soundly with a sense of deep refreshment but suddenly she found herself awake the moonlight streaming into the room she got up and went to the window the whole landscape lay in the softened light like some other world the terrace was vacant only the two chairs where the smokers had sat stood near together in friendly relation there was no sign of life in the world 
The very flowers on the terrace seemed asleep. She looked at her watch on the table. Five minutes to two. For a minute longer she stood looking out on the magic night. Its quietness soothed her spirit. The burden she had undertaken to lift seemed lighter, and her thought, travelling swiftly to the three people who were sleeping in the quiet house below, dwelt on them with a little feeling almost of tenderness. They seemed to her so helpless, caught in a tangle that only her patient skill could release, and they trusted her. The mood that was on her was at once a triumph and a scourge to her spirit. She knew that she would accomplish her purpose for them. Already she saw the happiness that was coming to the three who lay asleep. But she saw, too, the effort that must be made, and she felt the gathering concentration of her whole being that must lose itself for a time in these other lives, become part of the mystery it sought to solve, almost of the bone and tissue of these three people, of whose existence, a week ago, she had known nothing. No poet brooding on his lines was ever smitten with fiercer fire, or shrank with keener sensitiveness, from the final effort of concentration, the final uniting of himself with the mysterious forces of life, than this woman whose work lay in the shadowland of crime. Only by the intuition that guides all creative life and work did she know she was coming close to a moment when she must yield herself, and at the same time must guide with steady hand forces more powerful than herself to a successful issue. She did not say these things to herself. She did not think them. She only stood in the moonlight, looking down at the quiet world and steadying herself to it. Something that was not sound or breath passed swiftly across her vision, and her gaze rested on the brick pavement below. A block of light, faint, but deeper than moonlight, lay there. She glanced along the windows of the floor beneath. It was as she had guessed. The library window was lighted, and the curtains were not drawn. She threw on a wrapper and went swiftly down the stairs, her feet noiseless in the soft slippers she wore. The wide hall lay in the moonlight, no sign of life, and the library door was closed. She moved to it without sound and stood listening. The thick doors gave no hint of what was happening in the room behind them. She retraced her steps quickly to her room. She would dress and go down outside. Perhaps from a distance she could determine what was happening in the room with its deadened walls. She entered her room and crossed to the window and looked out and turned away. The block of light was gone from the pavement. Whoever was in the library had drawn the curtains together or had turned off the light. The door had not been opened. Of that she felt sure. However quietly it might have been done, her ear would have caught the sound. She left her door ajar and lay down on the outside of the bed in her wrapper and slippers. When the library door opened, she would see, from the turning of the landing, who it was that had called her from her sleep. And when she opened her eyes the sun was shining full into the room and resting on the bed. She got up, blinking a little, censoring herself for having fallen asleep. Signs of life were astir below. She went to the window and looked out into a daylight world. No mystery, no subtle sense of solution almost at hand. Clear, shining daylight, with the sun well up in the sky. A step sounded on the pavement below. She looked down, drawing the curtain with its thin folds across the window. On the terrace the son of the house, his hands in his pockets, stood whistling softly, almost happily, it seemed to her, and looking off on the landscape. She dressed hastily and hurried down. In the adjoining room the family were already at breakfast. Through the closed door she could hear faint sounds. Presently the door opened. Mrs. Mason stood in it. She stepped into the room. "'I have to go away.' she said with a little vexation. I told Elise Marshall I would help with the Red Cross work, 
and she has telephoned that they want me this morning. I did not mean to be away today. Shall you need me? No, I have plenty of work to do. She said it without emphasis, but the woman started and looked at her almost suspiciously. Millie waited while the eyes searched her face. Are you satisfied? she asked, smiling. The woman bent her head. Yes, I know everything will be right, but I am anxious. I cannot help it. I had a dream in the night. She spoke in a low, hurried voice. I dreamed we found the emeralds. We shall find them, said Millie. Yes, she checked herself swiftly. Through the door they could hear the two men talking casually. Millie nodded, with a little gesture to the door, and raised her voice. I have plenty of work, Mrs. Mason, and if it gives out I will work on the green jacket. I want to finish it before I go. The woman smiled wistfully and turned away. She paused a moment by her son's chair as she passed through the adjoining room. She put her hand on his shoulder. "'I am sorry to be away,' she said. He jumped up and accompanied her to the door and opened it for her to pass through. She looked up at him hopefully. "'You could drive me over and say, "'How do you do to Elise, if you liked?' He shook his head. "'Not this morning, mother. I have something to do that can't be put off. Tell Elise I sent all sorts of messages, won't you?' She smiled at him, and her hand touched his sleeve, almost protectingly, it seemed. "'I'll tell her, yes. Perhaps I will bring her back with me to luncheon.' "'Good, that will be fine.' He bent and kissed her, and returned to his place at the table. His father, who had just finished, and was on his feet, looked at him, smiling. "'I am sorry to leave you, but Jackson has just sent word from the garden. Some more of his blunders, I suppose. I had hoped we could walk to the links by and by. But you're going to be busy, you say?' The little moment of hesitation in the son's manner gave way to quick response. "'It will not take long, I hope. I'll try to be ready, sir.' He waited till his father's step had died away. Then he stepped quickly to the half-open door. "'You wanted me to see you,' he said. "'But my father—' "'I know,' responded Milly. "'And I shall not keep you long. I only wanted to ask you whether anything in your wife's manner ever gave you reason to suppose she knew why your mother had changed toward her.' He shook his head. "'She could not have known.' or she would have told me. We talked of it freely. Did you send for your mother to come to her when she was ill? No, it was Marion who sent. She had the nurse right. As soon as she knew. He stood staring before him. They did not tell me, till the very last. I suppose she was getting well up to the day she died. She would not let them tell me. He spoke in a low voice. Milly got up and stood beside him. Why did she send for her? she asked. He looked at her, startled by something in her manner. "'Why, to be friends again,' he said. She loved her dearly. She wanted to be reconciled to her. "'There was no other reason?' His forehead knit a little. "'There might have been, of course. She only told me she had sent for mother, and she must see her alone. I went away. When I came back she told me everything was just as it used to be between them. Then she made me promise to come home.' He had turned a little, and was looking off to the hills as if beyond them lay something his vision could not penetrate. "'You know she wrote a letter to your mother?' he bowed. "'I mailed it myself after she died.' "'Did you know what was in it?' "'No.' She took a copy of the letter from her dress and handed it to him. As he read it, she saw the tears in his eyes. He brushed them away. "'She did not think of herself, even then,' he said. "'What was it she would not tell?' His face was thoughtful. "'Can you imagine?' he broke out, why she would not tell, whatever it was. She pointed to the note. She was under a pledge. But who? What? He started and turned. His father was in the French window. He regarded the young man for a moment. 
"'Did you want me, father?' "'I always want you, Stephen,' said the man gently, with a smile. He stepped quickly to his father's side. "'I am ready, sir.' He slipped a hand through his arm affectionately, and side by side the father and son walked away. 